to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. This will be the third sermon in a series that flow from verses 13 through 20. Of course, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse over the last many months, and we will continue to do this as we glean some of the rich treasures that the Lord has for us. And we've been here especially in chapter 5 through 7. We've looked at the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, and now, as I say, we're in chapter 7. Actually, I'd like to begin in verse 13, but we will focus primarily on verses 15 through 20 this morning. Let's read this. Just follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13. Our Lord says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Well, indeed, it has been a supreme joy to look at our Lord's words and his sermon on the mount. Yet, as we have discovered, a discerning eye will reveal that what he teaches is a radical departure from contemporary evangelicalism. For many of you, what you've been hearing is nothing more than a reminder tantamount to Peter's words in 2 Timothy 3.1, where he said that he is stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And many times, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said many times we need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. But in other, for others, uh, this, is, this is new and this is perhaps even a bit sobering as maybe you are discovering that some of the things you thought, some of the things that you have been taught may in fact be indicative of the wide gate and the broad way. But certainly the truth that I hope you are seeing is that there has been an imperceptible drift that has occurred in the church. There is now a new God that has emerged, even in many of our evangelical circles, a kinder, gentler God, one who has kind of lowered his standards, one who has revised his gospel. And now Jesus has been in many circles demoted from the creator God and the savior of the Bible to some sentimental buddy that runs to aid the oppressed. One who merely winks at sin. And this, of course, is foundational to understanding the contrast between the wide and the narrow gates and the broad and the narrow way of the gospel. And so like the moon can quietly and imperceptibly eclipse the sun, the darkness of error continues to eclipse 
the truth, the light of the gospel of Christ. And we're warned of this in 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul tells us that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in verses 3 through 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of Christ. So we have discovered that Jesus is telling us of these things and he reminds us that there are two gates, the narrow and the wide. And depending upon which one you enter, there will be two ways, the narrow and the broad. And those two ways will lead to two destinations. One is the destination of life and the other the destination of destruction. And there are two groups that enter these respective gates. The few will enter the narrow way and proceed down the narrow path. And the many will enter the wide gate and traverse the wide path. And he has warned us also that there are two kinds of teachers, the true and the false. And we've begun to understand them a bit last week as he tells us about the warning of false prophets that we need to beware and also the marks of a false prophet that we will focus on primarily this morning. But by way of review, remember his warning about the false prophets in verse 15. He says, beware of these false prophets. Beware has the idea of turning your mind away. Avoid exposure. Don't let them have access into your mind. Because false teaching is not just bad theology. It is deadly. Stay away from it. Beware. Learn how to recognize false teaching. Learn how to be discerning of error, of counterfeit, and run from it. We learned last week that even in Matthew 24, our Lord warns that many false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So like Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of light, the father of lies deceives many well-meaning people. So how do we know this? How, what do we look for? How can we discern false teachers? How can we detect the counterfeit heresies that look so much like the real thing, but are in fact false? So what are the marks of a false prophet? There's going to be four, basically, that we will look at this morning. The first one we began to look at last week. We have to see them by who they impersonate, number one. We have to look for what they teach, number two. We have to determine how they live, and we will know them by who they attract. Who they impersonate, what they teach, how they live, and who they attract. Marks of a false prophet that flow from this text and others. Again, by way of review, the Lord says in verse 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. This refers to who they impersonate. They impersonate a true shepherd. Remember, the ancient shepherds could be easily recognized by their attire. They wore clothes made out of wool from their sheep. And this is what Jesus is referring to in this text, sheep's clothing. So in other words, just as false prophets 
would deceive people in the Old Testament by wearing the distinct garments of the prophets of those days. Likewise, false shepherds in the New Testament will disguise themselves. Now, catch this. This is an important distinct distinction that many get confused about. They disguise them not as a wolf wearing a sheepskin, pretending to be another sheep like you see in some of the art in our bookstores, but rather they disguise themselves as shepherds. They wear the clothing of a shepherd. They adorn themselves. They impersonate true shepherds, not the sheep. And what does the shepherd do? Well, he comes and he gains the trust of the sheep and he leads the sheep and feeds the sheep and protects them and loves them and so on. So false shepherds approach their flock as a friend, not as a foe. This this is what makes it so important to be able to discern the true from the false. And this is also what makes them so incredibly dangerous. They will gain their trust. Many will live morally upright lives. They will even appear to have orthodox Bible doctrine. They will use Bible terminology. And over the years, I've spent many hours working with a lot of these people. And I've seen some of them who were the unwitting charlatans, but others who absolutely knew the game that they were playing. But many are not that way. They will use Bible terminology. They will even be evangelistic. Many will have a sincere love for other people. But regardless of what they claim, if their message is something other than the gospel of Christ, they are a wolf in sheep's clothing. They are impersonating the true while, in fact, they are teaching the false. Now, remember, again, many, if not most of these people have been deceived by the father of lies and they are utterly convinced of their own sincerity. They would take great offense if you suggested that they were preaching or teaching the wide gate. So the first mark of a false shepherd will be that either they are intentionally a shrewd deceiver or perhaps they are an ignorant, maybe a better word would be unwitting or unintentional purveyor of error. And of course, usually this is reinforced by certain sinful proclivities in their lives, which only fueled their commitment to error. But regardless of the motive, dear friends, false teachers inevitably ascend some platform and assume some position of influence, the role of, of a true shepherd. The Lord says they will come to you. They will seek a following. They will desire an audience. They will want a platform. It might be a church. It might be a Sunday school class. It might be a Bible study. It might be a counseling. Therapeutic type of a scenario scenario, as you often hear, it might be seminars. It might be the fan club of certain musicians or books that they would write. But basically they will win the confidence and the love of undiscerning sheep within a religious community. These are the hardest to see. But Jesus wants us to be able to discern them so that we can beware, as he says. So first, we must determine the genuineness of their calling. Are they really impersonators or are they truly a shepherd of the flock of God? And the Lord helps us understand more of how we can discern that. In the second mark, we have to look at what they teach. And frankly, bottom line, they will preach the wide gate in the broad way. Notice in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. 
And he describes how the gates, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit, and so on. Now, it's important for you to remember that there is a continuum of Christian false teachers, ranging from what I would call the calculating charlatans who consciously contrive false doctrine and deception for their own personal gain. And of course, only the most gullible are going to look at that tree and say, oh boy, I want to eat from that fruit. Only the most naive will fall for that. But what the Lord is talking about here is something far more deceptive. He's talking about what I would call the innocently ignorant or maybe better, the unwittingly ignorant, because even though they might be innocent in terms of what they're teaching and that they don't really know that it's bad doctrine, they will still be held accountable. In fact, the scripture teaches that as teachers, we have a stricter judgment. These would be the ones who perhaps are Sunday school teachers or pastors or evangelists or whatever, who unintentionally, unintentionally propagate error. And typically what they will do is simply mimic what they have been erroneously taught and whatever their religious tradition has been. And so the metaphorical imagery that the Lord is using here in Matthew 7 with respect to the good trees and the, that bears good fruit and so on. He's not describing here a tree that is obviously diseased and uninviting. He's not describing some type of a, of a, of a plant that the most desperate and undiscerning people would, that, that only the most desperate and undiscerning people would come to and eat. Nor is he describing a good-looking tree that is bearing rotten fruit. Only a fool would dare come and eat of that kind of fruit. But rather, Jesus is describing here a false teacher that is so enticing, that is so delightful, that is so alluring, that they are likened to a tree that appears to bear good fruit. When you look at it, it looks good, it sounds good, it tastes good, it smells good, it must be good. But it is poison if it is preaching the wide gate and the broad way. Well, what does Jesus mean when he talks about the wide gate of the gospel? We've talked about this some. May I review it a bit and then add to that with some very clear specifics? The narrow gate is one that does not allow people to enter with ease, with, with the baggage of their sin. You don't enter with, un, with other people. You enter it alone. It will be a gate of intense pressure resulting from a conscious choice. It won't be some em, emotional, whimsical type of thing. It will be a determined, purposeful decision requiring strenuous effort. It will require one to be broken over their sin, longing for a Savior. One who confesses spiritual bankruptcy, who recognizes that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It will be a gate of self-denial, one where you hate your former self. It will be a gate that counts the cost of discipleship. It will be a gate where one will only enter if they're willing to take up a cross daily and follow Christ, even if it leads them to a cross. It will be a gate where one must abandon self-will and jettison their self-righteousness and their selfish ambitions and make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. Now, Jesus tells us that very few people 
will enter this gate. They prefer the wide gate that deceptively offers the destination of eternal life. Wide, in contrast to narrow, would be the roomy, spacious, inclusive gate. This would be the easy and cheap gate to enter. No need for any striving with this gate. There's no need to emphasize sin or confession or contrition or repentance. There's no idea of fleeing from the wrath of God and from hell. All of that's too offensive. All you need to do is whatever the system tells you to do. Maybe join the church, begin to follow their rituals or obey their legalistic laws and preferences, and you're in. Or if if you are coming from more evangelical circles... You just make a decision for Christ, you commonly hear. Just accept him into your life, is what you will hear, versus being so smitten with your sin and agreeing with God's verdict that you are guilty, that in desperation and crying out for mercy, you run to God and you ask him to accept you. The wide gate system considers a sustained and measurable repentance as unimportant. The idea of the spirit transforming someone so now they are new, a new creature in Christ and you can measure that in their life is a bit irrelevant. Just get them down there or wherever it is, get them to say the right thing and however that's defined in whatever tradition it is and you're in. That's the wide gate. And since few will find the narrow gate... What we see in circles today is that people are coming along and try to make the gate wider, make it easier and easier, because so few are finding the narrow gate. Just repeat this little prayer. I've done that before with people. I've learned that that is an error. I've watched the seed come up very quickly. And then as soon as the storms of life come, it dies and withers because it had no root. How different to come to someone and say, in love, that you have violated God's law, that you are at enmity with God. Your life is filled with rebellion, filled with selfishness. You're a slave to sin and to your lusts. The Bible says that you're at war with God. You're in the kingdom of darkness. Your father is the devil. You are imprisoned in the kingdom of darkness. You need to ask Jesus to save you. That's the narrow way invitation. Wide gate teachers will exhaust themselves to make the gospel less offensive. And what you will find is that sound doctrine will be sacrificed on the altar of methodology, of tolerance, of pragmatism. Whatever works, that's what you must do. Whatever brings them in, that's the new ministry method. That, of course, is at the very core of the modern church growth seeker-sensitive movement The wide gate sermon will certainly need to be humorous. It will need to be entertaining. It will need to be bereft of Bible doctrine because that is divisive. And of course, it must be short. And the services must have music in it that has adopted the philosophy that we must become as much like the world as we possibly can in order to win it. Because after all, if we do it any other way, very few people will want to hear it, want to sing it, and want to ever come to that church. Beloved, may I remind you that it is not our similarity with the world that draws people to Christ. It is our separateness from it. Now, to be more specific, a number of you have 
asked me to do this. And so this morning I'm going to go through some more specifics to help you see different things than different movements that would be indicative of the wide gate. And now, unfortunately, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because with many of these that I'm going to name by name, uh, there are some godly people with good intentions. But and, and I wish I had more time. And if you want me to, I will be glad to go into great detail because nothing that I'm about to say is something whimsical. It's something that I have great evidence and in most cases, firsthand knowledge of who they are and what they teach. But let me give you some specifics about wide gate movements and so that we can be more discerning. Certainly, this is at the very heart of the recent fad of promise keepers. I know some of the leaders. I've been involved with some of that and the leadership for the most part embrace charismatic mysticism and publicly denounce historical Orthodox Christian doctrine in an effort to be inclusive and tolerant of other faiths and traditions, as they would say. For the most part, Promise Keepers has become a mindless ecumenism where even Mormons and Roman Catholics and other heretical systems feel comfortable in participation without offense. You want to watch out for what people don't teach as much as what they do teach. What you will typically hear in wide gate theology is more ethereal, kind of God is love type of talk. But what you will not hear very much of, if at all, are things such as the, de- the total depravity of man, his violation of God's holy law, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the certain and, and re- reality of hell. For those who refuse to repent, you won't hear much about humility and and, and sacrifice and mortification of sin and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. There will not be an emphasis on the purity of the church. You will not see any need for disciplining or even confronting sin. You want to beware of any system that promotes a works righteousness type of a system that is apostate. They will say, in essence, that grace alone is not enough. They will have some type of a arrangement where you join their denomination. You will keep their rituals. For example, the Roman Catholics with their mass keeping of certain laws and so on. Be careful of those that do not believe in the inspiration and the infallibility of of Scripture. But rather, they will believe in the infallibility and inspiration of people outside of the Bible, like the Pope. And other famous people in their particular backgrounds. Be careful of any system, any church, any denomination that teaches aberrant types of beliefs. They're probably wide gate type of uh, people. For example, when I see a church or some denomination that that would uh, believe in something that is blatantly unbiblical, for example, homosexuality, or the, the whole gender-neutral Bible, those types of things. No, for certain, that's, that's wide-gate, broadway theology. You want to be careful of the guru movement, as I would call it, with, where they will have some emph- emphasis on some sensational things or miraculous things. I, I told you about Jim Jones last week. 
But, you know, there, there's so many names. Oral Roberts, Benny Hinn, Rodney Howard Brown, John Wimber. I mean, the, the, the names can go on and on. Those movements of gurus, uh, we've seen them come and go. Remember the way down workshop, the weight loss thing? Uh, that is such a distortion of Scripture. Um, remember the ridiculous sensationalism of the Bible codes? See, that's all wide gate Broadway stuff. The demon busters, watch out for them. There's a lot of people making a lot of money off of that. Uh, the bondage breaker seminars with Neil Anderson, where repentance is replaced by deliverance from Satan and so on. Watch out for church growth movements, seeker sensitive services. That is certainly an endeavor to make the gate as wide and the way as wide as they possibly can. Look out for books that are called bestsellers. Uh, one, one, one of the recent ones is the prayer of Jabez, just a neo, neo Gnosticism full, full of mysticism, a poor exposition of that text. Friends, think of it this way. If it's a bestseller and I'm not saying that all bestsellers are going to be wide gate, Broadway type of theology. But if it's a bestseller, there's probably a reason. And it's because the gate is really wide. I mean, you're not going to sell anything if you write stuff like you would hear out of this pulpit. And so, as the Lord says, the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. By the way, the same thing is, is true in contemporary Christian music. I've been heavily involved in that over the years. Be discerning. Ask yourself, I, I wonder if this popular artist or I wonder if this popular group is teaching the narrow gate and the narrow way. By the way, my rule of thumb is that in most cases, if it's hot, it's not It's just a good way of thinking about it. Friends, for the most part, any movement or, or, or any church that is exploding in growth and exploding in popularity or any person attracting great attention from the masses is probably indicative of wide gate Broadway theology. Beware of the ecumenical movement. It is. Utterly inimical to true Christianity that mixes with nothing. For example, the other day we got an invitation to um, to ask you all to join with some others and and attend in a church in the area and interdenominational Bible study. As soon as I hear that, I know exactly where they're coming from. Everyone is welcome, regardless of what you believe. Now, see, folks, that assumes two things, one or two, maybe both. It either assumes, number one, that sound doctrine is irrelevant or number two, that sound doctrine cannot be determined. And both of those positions are utterly false, easily refuted in Scripture. Routinely, we are admonished in Scripture to be of the same mind. In Ephesians four, we're told to attain to the unity of the faith, which refers to doctrinal unity and the knowledge of the son of God. As a result, when we do that, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. But you see, in an interdenominational type of Bible study or an interdenominational type of church, you Throw out all of those things and you basically reduce the gospel to its lowest common denominator, which in essence is basically God is love and let's just all love one another and and get ready for heaven. That type of thinking. Paul told Timothy in first Timothy six, three, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, 
and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Interdenominational Bible studies do not believe that type of thing. I love the way the New King James puts it in 1 Timothy 4, 13 and following. There, Paul tells young Pastor Timothy, and, and this is one of my favorite texts because it applies to me as a pastor, and certainly it would apply to all of you. He says, give attention to reading, which is the public exposition of Scripture, like you're hearing today, to exhortation, which is application, and to doctrine, which is the systematic teaching of sound doctrine. And in verse 15, he says, meditate on these things, Timothy, give yourself entirely to them that you progress, that that you that your progress may be evident to all. Then he says, take heed to yourself. In other words, to your life, Timothy, and to the doctrine, te didascalia, the doctrine, the one and only body of truth that is revealed in Scripture. Meditate on that. Take heed to that. And then he says, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. I would like to ask those that advocate this type of ecumenism, this interdenominational type of thing. I would like to ask, for example, the dear people that would be teaching that. And I want to say this in kindness, but I would love to ask, and I might, in fact, do this, will Will those who embrace the heresies of Pelagianism, such as the Roman Catholics and the Church of Christ, those who deny the depravity of man and exalt the human will over the sovereignty of God and salvation, those who promote a works righteousness type of system, those who believe in the dispensing of saving grace in the waters of baptism, those who believe in the Holy Eucharist and participate in mass, will those people feel comfortable in this Bible study? I'm curious, will the Roman Catholics who worship Mary and call her the Queen of Heaven, something that is clearly condemned in Jeremiah 44, those people who unfortunately are deceived as they worship Mary, as they see her as a co-redemptrix, those who believe they receive salvation in the Holy Spirit in baptism, those who go to a priest to confess their sins, those who see a priest as their mediator between God and man, of one who can grant them absolution. I'm curious when those people come, those, those who celebrate the sacrament of the Eucharist, where the priest celebrates mass, denoting the ongoing sacrifice of Christ and forgiveness from venial sins. Those who deny salvation by grace alone. Those who, since the Reformation, have been known to have killed over 200 million Christians like me. Will those people feel comfortable in this Bible study? What about the Seventh-day Adventists with their obsession with legalism? Dear people who are utterly confused about the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and thereby demean the grace of God, will they feel comfortable? What about the Pentecostals and the Assemblies of God? Many who certainly love the Lord, but their legacy is the wholesale abandonment of scriptural authority. Where experience validates their truth claims. Where everything is special revelation. God told me this and God told me that. Where they literally make up stuff. Well documented. What about the staggering apostasy of the Methodists in many Methodist circles? 
or the Episcopalians? What about the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam? I mean, where do you draw the line in your interdenominational study? You know, Jesus drew the line and he was crucified for it. That's why he had less than 500 followers after his earthly ministry. Beloved, please hear me. The interdenominational ecumenical movement is notorious for reducing the glorious gospel of Christ, as I say, to its lowest common denominator, which is basically some sentimental God is love type of thing. Let's all agree on that and agree on that alone, and then we'll all be united into one faith. Faith in what? That's not the gospel of Christ. That's not the narrow way. That's the broad way. And as a result, they eviscerate the very core of divine revelation and their attempt to become relevant and inclusive and tolerant, seeing that as some kind of a virtue. when in fact, according to the scripture, that is blasphemy. As Paul said in Galatians 1, how quickly you have gone to a different gospel. Whoever does that, he says, let him be accursed. You see, friends, it is truth that, is, that unites us into the body of Christ. And it is error that divides us. John MacArthur has said so well, and I quote, The creed of the false prophet, if he has any at all, will be vague, indefinite, and ethereal. No demanding truth will be absolute or clear cut. And every principle will be easy and attractive. False prophets talk much about the love of God, but nothing of his holiness. Much about people who are deprived, but nothing about those who are depraved. Much about God's universal fatherhood of every human being, but nothing about his unique fatherhood only of those who are his children through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Much about what God will give to us, but nothing about obedience to him. Much about health and happiness, but nothing about holiness and sacrifice. Their message is a message of gaps, the greatest gap of which leaves out the truth that saves. End quote. Beloved, beware as well of the evangelistic revival movement with its obsession with decisions and baptisms. Wherever there is emotional manipulation, whipping a crowd up into some kind of a frenzy and, and herding people through the gate with peer pressure, playing on people's emotions, whatever it takes to get a decision. You know, there's incredible power in peer pressure. And most evangelistic crusades prime the pump with hundreds of people that will begin to go forward. They've been designated to do that. You know, friends, if I can put it this way, it's easy to stampede a herd. It's easy to stampede a herd. It's, an, it's another matter altogether to watch someone run away from the herd in the opposite direction by the power of God. And beloved, when the gospel is fully understood and a sinner smells the smoke of hell, he will not need the manipulative proddings of a preacher or some emotional music or some peer pressure or some type of crowd dynamics to get him to repent of his sins. All he will need is, is exactly what he has, and that is the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And by that power, he will flee from the wrath to come. You see, it's a sinner truly under conviction cannot be stopped by anything on heaven or earth. The father is drawing his own 
And there is nothing that can mitigate against that power. The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against his church. Watch out for anything, any kind of movement, any kind of a church system where emotionalism is is commonplace. Certainly where there's an emphasis on tongues or on miracles or faith healing or prosperity theology. Where there is the preaching of the gospel of self-indulgence and self-fulfillment and self-esteem rather than our Lord's gospel of self-denial. Watch out for the ear-tickling preachers who will tell people what they want to, hear, want to hear. That's wide gate stuff. That's indicative of false teaching. Watch out for worship services where there are long periods of praise and worship music. Altering everyone's state of consciousness. Creating a mood of supernatural expectations. We learned this when I was in my psychology training. In fact, when they were teaching hypnotism, they said, watch faith healers. Watch these church servers. They use the same thing as the old mesmerists. Watch out for that. Where, like the hypnotist, the false teacher can easy, easily manipulate unwitting and naive victims that are now in a state of hyper-suggestibility. He can manipulate them to do just about anything. By the way, it's statistically known from studies that about 10% of the population can create a fantasy in their own mind out of thin air and believe it with all their heart. Well, we will know a false shepherd by who they impersonate and what they teach. There's many things that, that, that more that we could say, but I think that gives you a flavor. What they teach, what they leave out, but also, thirdly, by how they live. Charles Spurgeon dealt with this very issue back in the 1800s when he dealt with the downgrade controversy. Let me read you a quote from him. At the end of the Puritan age, by some means or other, first the ministers, then the churches got on the downgrade. And in some cases, the descent was rapid and in all very disastrous. In proportion, as the ministers seceded from the old Puritan godliness of life, and the old Calvinistic form of doctrine, they commonly became less earnest and less simple in their preaching, more speculative and less spiritual in the matter of their discourses, and dwelt more on the moral teachings of the New Testament than on the great central truths of Revelation. Natural theology frequently took the place that the great truths of the gospel ought to have held, and the sermons became more and more Christ-less. Corresponding results in the character and life, first of the preachers and then of the people, were only too plainly apparent. End quote. Beloved, beloved if, you, if you teach a wide gate, you probably haven't entered through the narrow. And you are probably living on the broad way. Peter talked about this, especially with respect to false prophets in Second Peter 2. Beginning in verse one, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, which gives us the idea that they will infiltrate the ranks of the church. They will become a self-appointed leader. And he goes on to say, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And we've had them even in this church. By the way, secretly is an interesting word in the original language. It means to smuggle something under the guise of something else. 
And then in verse two, he goes on and he says, and many will follow their sensuality, which means unbridled living. And by the way, the grammar indicates that this would refer to various forms of habitual acts of lasciviousness in their life. In other words, their lives will ultimately reflect their theology, reflect their teaching. Because all of that will emphasize the satisfaction of the lusts of the flesh. Why else would anybody enter that wide gate and go down that broad way? But if you watch them, truth and time walk hand in hand. Peter goes on to say, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Bottom line, false teachers will not only be destructive in their teaching, with their very appealing of heresies, but they will be three things from this text, egotistical, immoral, and greedy. Just look for that. Egotistical, immoral, and greedy. They're living on the broad way, the very way that he or she is teaching. It's very fascinating. There's an ancient doc- document that was written soon after the New Testament canon was closed. It was called the Didache. And the old, it's the oldest known document of what is commonly called the, the church orders. And it was, um, it was basically a, a, a document that had directives for catechetical instructions, for catechism to teach people uh, about worship and ministry. And there's one whole section in that ancient document that is devoted exclusively to false prophets. They used the term in that ancient doc- document, Christemporous, to describe the to describe false prophets, and and it literally means Christ merchants, Christ merchants, referring to those who would exploit gullible Christians by telling them what they want to hear, and then making a living off of that. And the Didache gives several important ways to distinguish between true and false prophets. Here's four of them. One, they said, and this is a paraphrase of it, that a true prophet would limit his stay as a house guest to two days only and then move on, be about his tent making work. Whereas a false prophet will stay indefinitely and mooch off of people. Secondly, the. Distinguishing Mark was with respect to asking for money. The true prophet would only ask for bread and water. And that was all. No money. Only basic provisions. But the false prophet, on the other hand, had no problem asking for money, even expecting and demanding it. A third test was, what, is he willing to work? Or was he lazy with a welfare mentality? A fourth test pertained to his lifestyle. Did he practice what he preached? Did he practice holy living? Was his standards consistent with godliness? Did his conduct match his creed? And it's sad, and I've seen this before over the years, people in many cases who can't hold down a job for whatever reason, they're frustrated with their direction in life, and they decide to go into ministry to make a living, to gain a little bit of prestige, to really become somebody and gain a little respect and recognition and These are typically people who become Christ merchants. We see this much in churches and unfortunately in mission fields. And then you add to that men and women who are perhaps obsessed with money. Maybe they're filled with greed. They're seeking power. 
and they're living some kind of a secret life where their lusts are pandered, their fleshly appetites. And what are they going to do? They're going to teach the wide gate and the broad way and live consistently with what they teach. John the Baptist rebuked the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees in Luke 3, 8. They were coming, remember, to be baptized. And he said to them, first, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Remember, when someone truly belongs to Christ, dear friends, when someone truly abides in the vine, as our Lord talks about in John 15, he's going to do what? He will bear much fruit. He will yield the fruits of repentance. And so what we see, and this will help you to be discerning, true believers, true teachers will be growing, not just maintaining the status quo. You see, you don't see a fruit on a vine that is just there. I mean, it's either dying or it's growing, right? One or the other. It's not just going to hang on there. And, of course, the Lord tells us in John 15 that that those that are truly on the vine are going to be pruned so that we bear more fruit and we are pruned through suffering and so on. So true believers will be growing. And according to Second Peter one in verse five through eight, they will grow in and look, look for these things. They will be growing, not just existing now, but they will be growing in faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love. And Peter goes on to say, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, how you live, the fruit that you bear validates the genuineness of your faith. Well, we must hasten on and wrap this up here this morning. We begin to discern False prophets by who they impersonate and how they do that, what they teach, how they live, and finally, who they attract. Obviously, they're going to attract the many, not the few. Remember, false teachers will be a magnet to false followers. They will ultimately emulate their shepherd. You see, false teachers will ultimately bear the fruit of pride and immorality and greed, as we've seen. And 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19 says they will speak out arrogant words of vanity, entice others by fleshly desires, by sensuality. And then later on, according to verses 20 through 22, it says that, that they may put on a good show for a while. This is a paraphrase of this. But, but as I say, truth and time will walk hand in hand. And ultimately, that text says that they will return to their own vomit. And like a pig dressed in some kind of a disguise, eventually, the text says that the that they will betray their their, their charade and once again wallow in the mire. And certainly their followers will do the same because ultimately they do not belong to Christ. Friends, I hope this helps you. Um, I, I hope you will be discerning and I hope you will have a passion for the true gospel of Christ that is come under such incredible attack today. And I trust that you will take these things and examine your own heart. And I trust that God will cause you to bear much fruit and certainly to be very, very discerning in this very difficult day in which we live. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for 
the clarity of your word and the way it speaks to our hearts. Lord, certainly we don't want to in any way deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow we are the elitist because, Lord, we're certainly not. The more we grow in you, the more we see our own sinfulness. And the more we are amazed at your grace. And yet, Lord, we do know that we have a responsibility to be discerning and to rightly divide the word of truth and to contend earnestly for the faith. So, Lord, I pray that this will be the cry of our hearts. Lord, may we do so with great love and great gentleness, but also with authority, the authority of your word. Lord, may the standard of our judgment be not our own imaginations, our own preferences. But Lord, may we be able to point people to the truth of your word and let that be the anchor. Lord, finally, I would again lift up any person that does not know you as Savior. Oh, Lord, how I pray that you will bring conviction to their heart. May this be the day that they experience the miracle of new birth as they confess their sins. Lord, thank you for your love for us. How we long to see you face to face. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For it's in your name that I pray. With great joy. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.